Uh, we read from uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 53 to uh, 72. It reads as follows. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophecy. Prophesy, rather. And the guards received him with blows. Verse 66. And as Peter below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Amen. morning. So we're going to finish uh, the passage that uh, Mash began for us, reading now at Mark 15, the first 15 verses. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, today. So today we're going to be looking at the trials of uh, Jesus Christ. Two trials that we've read about today. When you think about it, the first one was a religious trial uh, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, before 70 men. The second trial was a secular trial. It was a trial in front of the, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And both of these trials came to the same conclusion and verdict when they concluded that Jesus was to be, to be crucified. What might not be so obvious when we read this passage is uh, the setting of all of this. When it happened and, and where some of this happened. Let me just try and fill in some of the gaps as far as that is concerned. I mean, this, this, is, this is the night shift. All of this in chapter 14 takes place during the night. I mean, it, it finishes, doesn't it, with the cock crowing for the second time. Dawn is beginning to break. And then verse 1 of 15, as soon as it was morning. So everything else that has happened before then has all been during the night. I mean, it's very interesting, actually, if you fill out all the gaps, reading the various synoptic gospels on this, when the Last Supper was initiated, and uh, Judas leaves the room, and he goes out, it says it was night. When they then went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas came with the band of soldiers, they brought with them clubs and lanterns, because it's night. And what happens is that there, there is movement during all of these hours, you know, from just before midnight all the way through to the dawn breaking. They're not just in one location. Because we read here that they first of all go to the, the chief priest's um, courtyard, the high priest's courtyard. And things were slightly different at this point. There were actually two priests, high priests. The daddy of them all was a man called Annas. He had several sons who became high priests after him. They first of all had gone to his palace. And then during the course of the night, they move on to the, the palace of Caiaphas as well. 
And then you find later on that they come to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And after that, they actually go across the city again to Herod and then back to Pilate again. So there is this cohort, there is this group that is zigzagging its way across the city of Jerusalem to these various locations during the course of the early hours of the morning, during the night, during the darkness with their their lanterns held and all the rest of it. This is the setting of the trials that Jesus Christ is undergoing. I want to make a pretty basic application just at the start of uh, the service, and it's this. That whether whether we really like to to think about this or not, um, today... Christ still stands trial in front of all of us. I mean, Christianity in general is under trial, isn't it? As far as our, 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 our nation is concerned. You know, the values of Christianity are being looked at and are being listened to. And people are forming an opinion on that and making a verdict upon that. But, you know, it's not Christianity that is under trial. It is Christ who's under trial. Christ himself, the person of the Lord Jesus, and his teaching and his work upon the cross. And and he stands in front of us today, not just as a, a general congregation, but every individual person who is here seated this morning, The Lord Jesus stands in front of all of us and we have to make a verdict as far as he is concerned. I don't know if you've ever been on a jury. I've never been on a jury, probably because often I'm asked to be there as a professional witness in court and probably my name is scored off because of that. But what must it be like to be on a jury? You know, when you listen to the evidence... You hear everything that's said, both prosecutor and defense, and you discuss it, and you weigh it up, and you come to a decision, and the foreman stands up and the verdict is delivered to the judge. You know, we're we're a jury today, and the Lord Jesus Christ is under trial, and we have to make our own decision about that, one way or the other. No decision is a decision. We have to make one. Now, What I found very helpful here is this, that in looking at these trials and these passages, there, there are certain points of view, there are certain issues that come to the fore that are major as far as them reaching the decision that they reach. And I I pondered that, I thought about that this week. And that's what I want to share. Uh, with you this morning. So let's let's look at first of all this religious trial. Now I mean it was it was basically an illegal trial. You're, you're not many hold these things at at the drop of a hat and in the middle of the night. There's meant to be due process as far as these things are concerned. So this was illegal to start with, and yet here they are. They're all pulled out of their beds. Messengers are sent to get them together from all their various houses. Come to the palace of the high priest. There's a, there's a trial that's going to be held. And uh, these 70 men that form what they called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they listen to what is being said. Now, there's two points. We've got them up here. 
that seem to jump out to me here. And the first one is this. It's the whole idea of prejudice and of bias. The way the passage reads is this. They, they, they are looking for witnesses against Jesus. You know, it's pretty clear that they had already reached a decision. They, they had come to their own conclusion. They knew where they wanted to go. It wasn't the case that they were listening dispassionately, objectively to the various arguments, and then they were going on the basis of that to make their decision. They'd already made their decision. And they were trying to fit everything else into it to give it some resemblance of normality. They approached the trial of Christ with bias and with prejudice. I mean, I think we can apply that. I I think that is still a very real thing, actually. And the way that a lot of us approach the reading of the Bible and the person of Christ. We've made our minds up. We know what we think. And probably many of us have actually never, never read it, never thought about it, never considered it with an honest and with an open mind at all. It reminded me of the, the words that Paul Simon wrote in his song, The Boxer. You know, he said, uh, It's all lies and jest till a man hears what he wants to hear and he disregards the rest. You know, that's very true, actually. Prejudice. I remember reading about somebody, an agnostic who, 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 had, uh, who, who did not believe in God, who did not believe in, um, in creation in particular. And um, the point was made that even if there did seem to be evidence that leaned towards the opposite side, He could just never countenance the fact of there being a creator. And part of the reason for that is that there are implications to these things. That if people, for instance, take on board the possibility of there being a God, then that means that I have to stand before God one day and I will have to give an account and he will hold me responsible. But if I shelf that, then these things are null and void. And so the challenge that comes to all of us today is to look into our hearts and see if we can recognize what seemed to be so apparent in this trial, that there was, there was prejudice and there was bias and there was not an honest looking at things. I want to pick up on the point that uh, Ollie highlighted, the silence of Christ. Verse 61, he remained silent and he made no answer, not only in this trial, but also uh, before Pilate. Pilate was amazed at that, that he was saying nothing in the face of all the accusations that were leveled at him. I think there are a few reasons for that. The first reason is that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. As we read in Isaiah 53, all these hundreds of years before, That's what was said and it was fulfilled in the life of Christ. As a sheep is silent before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. 
I think there are a couple of other reasons for it as well, though. It's it's particularly obvious when he stood before Herod, actually, and again said nothing. I mean, there was something rather chilling about the fact that he said nothing to Herod. Plenty had been said to Herod. John the Baptist had spoken many times to Herod, and he disregarded that. And he had rejected that and hardened his heart. And it was almost as if Christ was saying, I've got nothing more to say to you. You have had your opportunity. And there is nothing else to say. You know, very solemn, the fact of the silence of Christ in front of Herod. The other thing is this. I think it shows the willingness that he had not to defend himself. The fact that he was willing to proceed to the cross. I mean, Peter actually raises this issue when he says that uh, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who his own self bore our sin in his own body on the tree. He was not defending himself. I mean, Pilate was saying, said that. He said, don't you realize I have power to release you? I'm a man of influence. Speak up. Answer these accusations. I can maybe help you here. And yet Jesus chose not to do that because he was moving towards the cross. This was his mission. The second point in this religious trial is um, the point about blasphemy. Because there's now a direct question that is being asked. They're frustrated. And the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And in answer to that, he's crystal clear. He says, I am. And this is a quotation from the book of Daniel. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And, And they knew exactly what he meant. They knew exactly what he was saying. That this was a clear declaration that he was the Messiah. That he was God the Son incarnate. And, and this is too much for them. And he tears his garment. And uh, what else do we need? No other witnesses are required. Here is blasphemy. And they begin to strike him. And there's this violent kind of reaction and response. You know, horrible stuff. Spitting on him and striking him. And even the guards um, beating him as well. And it's all because of their perception of his blasphemous words. Now, there was nothing worse in their book as far as blasphemy was concerned. It was the worst thing possible. And this was their definition of it. Does blasphemy happen today? I mean, I guess if we uh, came up against the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, you know, we would recognize that some people are accused of blasphemy. But 
it can take place in a secular society as well. I mean, that word won't be used. And it's not in a religious setting. But essentially, that is what it is. When you have people who have ideologies and they hold certain points of view as so sacrosanct that if you say anything against it or counter it or question it, everything else goes out the window and you're met with a violent response and a violent reaction. And some people, when they listen to Christ and his teaching and the Bible and the meaning of his death in our society, even although they're not religious, this is almost looked upon as blasphemous, as toxic. You cannot say that and they violently react against it. I mean, it's possible that there are people listening to this today and, and that's bubbling up within your, your heart and within your mind. A reaction against something you, you feel is just outrageous and you cannot tolerate the fact that the Bible talks about truth and that Christ is the way, the truth and the life and that no man can come to the Father except by him and that there's only one mediator between God and men and that is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for many. And maybe these factors that were so real at that time are still factors that are relevant as far as our verdict as we look at Christ and come to a conclusion. Now both these trials are kind of sandwiched by this other event, verse 66, regarding Peter. You know, to Peter's credit, when everybody else is fled, run away, he's followed at a distance all the way to the high priest's palace and he's there in the courtyard as all of this is going on inside. He's out there warming himself beside the fire. I mean, the interesting thing about this, it's fascinating, the symmetry of scripture, isn't it? Sandwiched between these two trials, you know, Peter is under trial. You know, it's not, the, it's not the Roman governor. It's not the Sanhedrin. It's a servant girl. And it's the bystanders. And they're questioning him. And, and he buckles under it. I mean, it's a contrast, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got the majesty of Christ. And now you've got Peter. Despite all his kind of protestations of bravery, if you go back a chapter... When Jesus said, you'll all, you'll all forsake me. He said, even although all these boys do, I, I will never do it. I'll, I'll go to death for you, Lord. I'll be with you the whole way. I'm here for the long haul. Despite all of that, you surely were with him. You're not one of them. Never knew the man. And the cock crows. And he suddenly remembers the words of Christ. And he, and he goes out and, and he weeps. He weeps bitterly. What is it scripture says? Let the one that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
You know, the dangers of pride, self-confidence, even arrogance at times among Christian people. We need to be dependent on the Lord for our strength, cast our burdens upon him, and be dependent on the strength of God's Spirit. You know, there is, a, there is a sense in which this incident is an encouragement for us. I mean, this was a bump in the road for, for Peter. It, it, it wasn't the whole road. It was just a bump in the road for him. His, his, his remorse was genuine. He genuinely was, was repentant at all of this. I mean, it's quite a different thing from what we, we touched on last week. You remember that verse from last week? He who endures to the end will be saved. And how that is such an important thing. Persevering, keeping on, sticking with Christ. You might say, well, what about Peter? He, he's doing anything but that. He's, he's, he's just caved in. And yet Peter, to his credit, you know, when the Lord restored him, he makes clear his love and his devotion for Christ. And, and he lays down his life eventually as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace of Christ and his forgiveness and his restoration ranks high in the life of Peter. And that is an encouragement for, for all of us who, who when under trial for Christ, might at times not do very well. Let's come to the, the second trial, though. The secular t- trial under Pontius Pilate. There are two things here that I, I just want to talk about. Other factors, big factors, as far as Pilate's thinking and what influenced him in the verdict that he came to as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned. And again, I think these are very relevant And could very well be things that influence us as well. As we have Christ before us today. As far as our response is concerned. The first one is that he knows the right thing. There's no doubt about that. He knew what the right thing was to do. I mean it says, doesn't it, in verse number 10. That... uh, Despite the Jewish council coming in and, and giving you know, their rigmarole and their opening statement and the polished speeches and all the rest of it, he could see right through the whole thing. He knew what was behind it all, that it was envy. That was the reason that they had delivered him up. So he, he knew it all. He cut through all the other stuff. He knew that. And yet he still made the wrong decision. I mean, that's the definition really of a, of a tragedy, isn't it? When somebody knows the right thing and, and, and just goes the wrong road. I mean, there were plenty of other reasons that substantiated him knowing the right thing. Remember, his wife came to him, have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man. I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. You know, he himself said on... on at least two occasions to the crowd, you know, this man has done nothing wrong. There is nothing that has been done wrong. And even the fact that he 
he has this incident with Barabbas. You know, this was a custom, of course, at the feast, that uh, holiday time. Let's, let's release one of the prisoners as a token of goodwill. And he, he's, he's trying to play them at their own game. And he's saying, well, yes, perhaps if I, if I made a big contrast, here is Barabbas, an insurrectionist, actually a murderer. You couldn't get anybody worse than Barabbas and compare him with the Lord Jesus, the one who went about continually doing good, you know, the kind and gentle and blessed Christ. Why, why don't we compare them both? It will be an obvious answer. And yet they chose Barabbas. He knew what the right thing was to do. And that's why he felt backed into a corner. And he brings the water out, you remember. And he washes his hands. I am innocent of the blood of this man. And, he's, and he's, he knows what the right thing is to do. But he finds that he's not about to do it at all. That's something that rings true. Know the right thing. Not doing the right thing. Something else here. And it's this. He chose to satisfy the crowd. Verse 15. That was a big thing for him. It wasn't just the crowd that was in front of him either. It was the crowd that were back in Rome where he came from. Because the crowd, they, they shouted to him, if you let this man go, you're, you're not Caesar's friend. And that sent a chill into the soul of Pontius Pilate. That this, this could have repercussions for him as far as the Roman governor, as far as the emperor was concerned. And, and it began to eat at him. And that pressure that came from the crowd and from his peers and from those who were around him, that fed into his thinking and his decision-making. Now, we don't have to make a massive jump on this one, do we? We know that that is also very true for all of us. What people think about us, what our friends, what our family, what our workmates, what society what the media, what everybody else says and everybody else thinks. We go along with that. It has such a big say and a big influence in the, in the way that we ourselves also think. And will it have an impression upon us when it comes to the verdict we have about standing for Christ and believing in Him and living for Him and loving Him? We have to be be willing to stand up against what the crowd says and state our faith and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to just say something else actually about Barabbas just before we close. I mean, he must have been absolutely bewildered. I mean, he was expecting to be crucified that day until he heard the, the rattle of the, the jailer's keys and the doors flung open and he's told that he can go and you can just imagine him blinking in the in the sunlight and, and wandering through the streets and finding out what actually happened and I, I mean he's one of the clearest examples that we have in scripture 
of the doctrine of substitution. You know, Jesus actually died on the cross that Barabbas should have been crucified on. He was his substitute. And, you know, substitution is a wonderful doctrine, a wonderful teaching in the Bible. That Jesus took my place. And he died for me. That Christ died for our sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring me to God. The son of God loved me. And he gave himself for me. Or as we will think when we come this evening. To remember the Lord. My body was given for you. My blood It was poured out for you. I mean, in a sense, Barabbas could say he was my substitute in that sense. I wonder if all of us today can say in a real spiritual sense, as far as the position of our soul is concerned, Christ is my substitute. He died for me. You know, I embrace that. He died for me point where the incident really finishes with Pilate's verdict for the crucifixion is the scourging uh, of Jesus scourging was a horrendous thing that the Romans devised it was flogging uh, with, a, with a, a whip that had many strands to it embedded with pieces of bone and metal and you can just understand Uh, the effect that had on somebody. One of the Psalms actually says that Christ, the Messiah's back, was like a ploughed field. You know, such was the horrendous treatment prior even to the crucifixion that he had to suffer uh, on our behalf. So this is the verdict. These are the conclusions of the trial of Jesus Christ. Just as I close... If you've got a minute, could could you just turn to the second psalm? Because in many ways, this is a commentary on, on what we've just been thinking about. As far as our own verdict, the jury that we are today. Look at how it describes. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them. In his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge 
in him. Could we hold last week's message and this week's message together? The return of Christ with great power and glory to this world, along with the suffering Christ here? The humiliation of Christ for the sake of the sins of the world will be answered by his coming again. And that means this, that those of us, all of us, who stand in judgment over Christ now, the roles will be reversed and he will stand as judge over us in a coming day. And, and what we are told to do from Psalm number 2 is kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Show your allegiance. Bow your knee. Show homage. Accept Christ as Savior and as Lord. These are the, the lessons that come to us as we weigh up these things. It's actually us who are on trial. The thoughts and the intents of our heart are being exposed as we answer the question or ask the question that Pilate himself asked. What, what will I do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? What's the dilemma? What will I do in this situation? That is the great dilemma that all of humanity is in when we stand with Christ on trial before us today. Now shall we pray? Lord, for these solemn moments with your word open before us, trying to get to the very heart of the meaning of the Bible, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and our reaction and response to that. So Lord, help us to realize that as we are here today, it is to make a response one way or the other. What will I do with Jesus, who is called Christ, and what will he do with me? one day, dependent on my response. And so, Lord, help us all with clarity of thinking to, to make a decision to kiss the Son and show our allegiance to Christ today. We pray for each other. We pray for the young people. We pray for the children who have been taught your word today. May, us, may we all come to wholehearted devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.